Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and today's guest is Dr. Michael Cargreg, who is one of Australia's highest profile psychologists and author of 14 books. He's also a broadcaster and a specialist in providing corporate mental health, support for families, parents, children, adolescents, and really enjoys the space of technology in mental health, such as apps and e-therapy. Michael's on the show today to talk about what he dubs as a crisis in mental health in Australia, but it gives some really practical ideas and antidotes as to how we can all address this, not only as psychologists, but community members and potentially us who are also experiencing mental health difficulties ourselves. So some really great advice and opinions and thoughts, you know, quite thought-provoking from Michael, uh, and I think you're going to really enjoy this particular episode. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Cargreg. Michael, a big thank you for coming on to our program today to talk about the mental health crisis in Australia. I know this is something you've spoken about before and I thought it's a really good opportunity to, to invite you on and to talk about your experience and obviously knowledge and research in this area, uh, having you know, done so much throughout Australia. Thanks, Nesh. Good to be with you. Tell me a little bit about what, what's meant by the word you know, crises. I know that's a, it's a large word, uh, but what, what, what's meant about you know, crises in, in the context of mental health? So we know from the research that one in five adults, one in four teenagers and one in seven children have uh, a mental illness. A mental illness is something that interferes with the thoughts um, and the behaviours and the feelings of people to the point where it interferes with their functioning. And before coronavirus, things were pretty dire and the crisis stemmed from the fact that 65% of those people did not get any treatment at all for their mental illness, none whatsoever. And to me, that's a crisis because it means that at any one time, you've got 65% of people with the mental health problems um, not getting the help that they need. And that's going to impact not only on themselves, but on their friends and their families and their capacity to work. So I guess in a nutshell, that's the crisis. And is this something that's unique to Australia? Is, is there a global trend that this is, you know, going by? Has Australia been this way in the past? What, what, what's going on? Well, there are two questions there. One is, um, is it a trend internationally? 
and certainly in Western nations, all my colleagues who are child and adolescent psychologists say it's the same or worse. Nowhere is it better. Um, and uh, I guess with respect to um, has this always been the way, well, we don't actually know if it's always been the way because we don't have the data. Um, the data we're operating off at the moment is a 2007 National Mental Health Survey. And the scandal there is that the government said that they'd be conducting this thing every 10 years. They didn't do it in 2017. They haven't done it in 18, 19, and they certainly haven't done it this year, um, which is quite extraordinary because you actually think about the fact the whole mental health care system is based on um, 2007 data. So it's data that's 13 years old. So um, it's, it's really quite an extraordinary situation that we find ourselves in. And I think some of the politicians and some of the general public have what I call mental health compassion fatigue. So they'll listen to someone like um, Ian Hickey or Pat McGorry or myself um, and they'll go, oh, they're those mental health advocates yapping on again. But it's not until it affects them that um, suddenly it becomes a big issue. It's absolutely astounding that the data we're using is from 2007. It doesn't uh, uh, fill me with much hope in terms of trying to address a national problem using really outdated um, uh, measures and, and, and data to tell us what are the trends, trends how can we go out and um, you know, improve our healthcare. I mean, I know that the government has very recently in response to coronavirus uh, added in mental health care plans in the primary um, uh, sort of access uh, to mental health and additional 10 appointments. And obviously that's you know, more than welcomed. It's incredible. I think it's a fantastic step forward uh, and certainly goes in line with, you know, uh, uh, continuity of care and best practice. But I would like to think that we've got a little bit more data uh, that we're um, kind of using to, to, to inform what do we do next? So the, I think the problem is that the mental health care system is a little bit like a, a traffic jam. Um, and I used to grow up in Sydney and I remember we used to go on the Pacific Highway. Now, I don't know if the Pacific Highway through Gordon and Pimble is still essentially two lanes, um, but it, it, it's just, it was completely clogged. And so I'm saying that our mental health care system has a supply and demand problem. And that is that we don't have enough services for the people. So we have a system which is completely clogged up. We wait till someone is desperately, desperately unwell. And then we try and find them a place in a system which is completely and utterly clogged up. And generally speaking, they don't get um, absolutely optimal care. And what the government does is that they build new lanes on the highway. But because of the supply and demand problem, those new lanes clog up really, really quickly. So I don't think we can clinic 
um, build more head spaces or um, make more sessions available on Medicare um, our way out of this. I think we need a much more nuanced approach. And I think our approach needs to be more heavily reliant on e-therapy, which I'm a great fan of. And also um, we need to focus on prevention um, and early intervention because um, I'm, I'm waiting to go upstairs to, to my clinic today. Uh, I live in Melbourne. Um, the last nine months have been a nightmare for all of us um, in that there just simply um, aren't enough hours in the day. And um, I'm getting phone calls from desperate parents with, um, I'm a child and adolescent psychologist, kids self-harming, um, kids lock, locking themselves in the room. Um, it's, it's just been uh, the, the, the worst um, year of my 25 years of clinical practice. It's just appalling. So um, before coronavirus, it was pretty dire. I think Pat and Ian have talked about this second curve. Um, I think the second curve is going to hit with great ferocity um, in about a month's time because we'll get the fallout of everything that's happened over the last nine months here. I don't know what it's like in New South Wales um, or other states and territories, but it's pretty dire here. When you say the second curve, uh, are you talking about a mental health curve or, or as in more coronavirus uh, cases? No, no, I'm definitely talking about a mental health. Mental um, that, that, that there's going to be a flood, a wave of, of impact that's come from, you know, the lockdown and the like. So Pat, Pat and Ian's modelling, which they did at the beginning of the, um, halfway through the first lockdown, said that there would be, Worst case scenario, an additional 1,500 suicides throughout Australia. Um, every year, they're 3,000. So that's effectively a doubling. The best case scenario that they could see was about um, maybe 700, 800 new suicides. Either way, that's terrible. What I'm seeing is an increase in um, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, substance abuse disorders, domestic violence, um, and an exacerbation of parenting issues. And for my particular cohort, which are teenagers, there are only four things that they need to do, Nesh, and that is they need to make friends, they need to go to school, they need to figure out who they are, and they need to basically emancipate from their adult carers. All four of those key developmental tasks have been massively thwarted by um, the, the coronavirus, by the lockdown, to varying degrees in varying states and territories across Australia. Um, but you, you don't get away with that. There's no way that there's not a cost to all of that. And I think that's what we'll bear in the next couple of uh, months and, um, and, and years ahead. You mentioned that the current approach is to try and build more lanes, but obviously the, the volume of traffic is so great that those lanes just get completely consumed again and we're in the same situation. You mentioned a few alternatives such as uh, e-therapy uh, and 
sort of prevention, um, you know, ground roots, sort of early early intervention, sort of work. Can you can you talk us through a little bit about about the, some of the specifics of of where you think it would be useful to put resources? Um, you know, if we could change the model. So I think. Um psychologists need to be better trained in e-therapy. I think the vast majority of my colleagues probably don't use the apps, the websites and the biometric devices, which exist, which are particularly perfect for, for my cohort, but also for an adult cohort. Um, and, and I'm talking about organizations like, um, uh, well, websites like Mood Gym, for example, uh, which is cognitive behavioral therapy online, the adult equivalent, which is eCouch. Um, these types of evidence-based programs that, that are found to be really effective for mild to moderate um, anxiety and depression, they need to be heavily promoted. They need to be, um, uh, there needs to be a, a really significant budget um, around advertising them in the same way that you'd advertise, I don't know, Coke. Um, because to me, that this is really, really important. Um, the uh, fact that they're free, they overcome geographical boundaries, they are um, evidence-based and uh, they get around the problem of stigma uh, means that they are the logical go-to uh, choice. They exist. Um, the government, the federal government has a, a portal for all of these things called Head to Health, but it's not heavily promoted and it needs to be really up there. Um, I think when it comes to our, our training as psychologists, um, whether you are a clinical psychologist or whether or not you're a child or adolescent or a counselling psychologist, You've got to learn how to use these um, these amazing apps that exist. Um, I, I, when I was on the board of the Australian Psychological Society, I frequently ran workshops um, uh, called "Is That a Psychologist in Your Pocket?" And what I'd do is go through the top ten apps that I'd use on a regular basis with my clients. And a lot of them are really simple, very straightforward things. Mindfulness meditation through Smiling Mind. Um, ACT through that little app called ACT Companion. Um, apps for exercise like Couch to 5K. Um, apps for sleep and relaxation like Calm, the 2017 Apple app of the year. There are a whole range of them but it is just incredible how many of my clients, I, uh, I, I have never heard of them. And these are clients who've been to um, screes of psychiatrists and psychologists. So that's, that's one aspect, the whole e-therapy side of things. The other thing is prevention. Um, and um, this is really about getting into our schools because I'm a child and adolescent psychologist and, and teaching kids the skills and the knowledge and the strategies and the emotional literacy that they don't get. The curriculum is so crammed full of stuff that in my humble opinion will never be used um, by these young people when they uh, hit the workforce. And yet one of the most important life skills, um, it would have to be things like conflict resolution, 
anger management, problem solving, decision making. They're not taught at all, Nesh. And that just doesn't make any, any sense. So how do you equip our young people for the future if you don't give them these valuable skills? You've got very compelling arguments in, 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 in both cases. I think what you say about, you know, this e-therapy is, is not really an issue of availability. It's an, it's, it's an issue of promotion, uh, that there's lots of great resources and we need to give people confidence that they're going to the right place. I, I can imagine people who are in hardship, you know, who are going through a difficult time, uh, you know, being lost in the world of mental health, you want to go see, a, you know, a specialist. And so you immediately see a doctor and the doctor says, see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever it might be. And, and so you're dependent on an hour to hour consult versus being able to do your own time, you know, your own, your own work and, and uh, understand yourself better through an infinite, you know, uh, amount of resources. Uh, you're kind of saying if we could place, we're not trying to, re- we're not trying to replace psychologists by, by any means. We're trying to take the burden off, off the, uh, uh, the traffic jam and, and say some people might not even need to get onto the road if there is enough support there for mild to moderate uh, experiences and cases uh, that could give them life skills uh, purely through through their own their own work and rather than jamming in uh, I, i'm assuming countless of millions of dollars in promoting headspace which is a fantastic service but you're only just adding to the uh, traffic jam rather than saying uh, maybe we've done enough there or we can continue to do some there and some to these other resources. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good, good summary. Absolutely. And it's the versatility, the fact that people can access these um, particular programs when it suits them, not when it suits me uh, and, and or their, um, their clinicians. So and- absolutely. And th- therapy would have to go out and agree with this because we all know that when, when you're seeing someone for an extended period of time, you're only hearing one psychologist's voice, one psychologist's train of thought. You know, we, we ourselves get stuck into, you know, our own little um, you know, niches and paradigms and, and, and our language sets and, and, and so on versus to be able to hear it from a different app, you know, from a different developer, different platform that it's provided goes out and enriches the, the, the experience or the, or the opportunity to learn, um, uh, you know, over time. So it sounds, sounds great. The other thing I want to pick, pick up on, uh, what would the topics be? You, you did mention a few like conflict resolution. Um, I mean, this all makes so much sense to me. What would the topics be uh, that you would want to have in the curriculum that we could spend, you know, a term on or even a, uh, a semester on or potentially, you know, across the board where each year we spend a bit of time with our kids in particular because obviously I think ground roots is, is, is most important in, in early intervention. What would you like to, to, to you know, the topics and, and, you know, what would be within those topics that we, we, we could teach, you know, whether it's psychologists, psychologists going in or, or, or um, you know, assisting teachers to do part of that job as well because, you know, you'd need to uh, work hand in hand uh, if you're going to do something Australia-wide. I think 
probably the um, the truth is students learn teachers, not subjects. So part of this is to make sure that the teacher's mental health is pretty good, that they model good well-being. So the sorts of things that I would want the teachers to talk about would be the building blocks of well-being. So diet, exercise, sleep, and, and relationships. Um, a few, oh, almost more than a decade ago, um, I, had, um, I had a meeting with uh, Marty Seligman um, and positive psychology was in its infancy. And um, someone had told him that I was the, the Dr. Phil of Australia, which is complete BS. But he decided that, that um, I was worth talking to. And um, he said to me, you know, the key message that you've got to get across to everyone in Australia is that the greatest predictor of well-being was not being good looking, was not being wealthy, was not having more good experiences than bad. Um, it, it wasn't really even about the amount of talent that you had. Uh, he said the greatest predictor of well-being was having a rich repertoire of friends. Now, that's a slight oversimplification, but certainly if you look at the positive psychology literature, it's a lot of evidence to support the importance of relationships. So I think in addition to diet, exercise and um, sleep, we, we need to emphasize um, how to obtain, maintain and retain uh, friends. Um, and a lot of kids don't know how to do that. I think a lot of adult human beings don't know how to do that because they've never been taught. Um, I, I was always taught by my mother um, that friends were, were like a garden. They needed to be watered and um, that you only ever got out of a relationship what you put in. I think these are fundamental truths. And um, so relationships, I think, are, are way more important at this stage than calculus or quadratic equations. Or um, I remember what I was taught endlessly at, um, at school when I was in Sydney, which was um, about the tundra, uh, which I've never used in my life. Uh, you know, treeless plains in the, in, with, with freezing weather. Why did I spend so much time learning absolutely um, useless information? So, so that's number one. With respect to diet, I'm a great fan of the work of Professor Felice Jacker at um, the Food Mood Centre at Deakin University. So the last 10 Say years... Food Mood? Food Mood Centre, okay. yeah. Um, the last 10 years, she published an article in the American Journal of Psychiatry um, in January uh, 2010. And I met her around about the same time. And what she was positing was a whole new school of thought, which she called nutritional psychiatry. And um, I remember going to some of the sort of traditional psychiatrists at the time with whom I worked, and they poo-pooed it and they said, no, no, this is nonsense. But in fact, her research team has shown that it's not nonsense that, for example, a modified Mediterranean diet um, uh, given to a group of people who were depressed and have a control group who just ate a normal diet um, 
we know that there was a significant difference between the control group and the group that were eating the modified Mediterranean diet to their scores on, on depression. So uh, uh, from my point of view, if ever, uh, when I, I go upstairs today and start my clinic, um, whenever I get a, uh, a, a young person living with a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder, one of the first things I do is I check out their diet because clearly Felice has shown that high fat, high sugar, um, high processed food are not good for, for you. And the whole gut brain connection has now been well established. I think that's probably one of the most significant advances in modern medicine. So I think we need to teach kids early on about, you know, while they're brought up with a muck diet um, and they're bombarded with advertising for fast food um, in association with various sports. We're about to have a, a cricket series uh, sponsored once again by um, KFC. Um, and I think that association between sport and food is highly undesirable, fast food. So I think teaching them good food habits is great. With, with respect to um, sleep, well, I mean, this is one of the great, um, I think, public health dilemmas uh, for, for us psychologists at the moment, because people don't get enough sleep. They spend way too much time staring into screens. Um, I'm a great fan of uh, uh, Professor Russell Foster, who's the Professor of Circadian Studies at Oxford University. And um, I don't know whether you provide links to these um, talks, but he's got a TED talk um, called Why Do We Sleep, which is superb. I don't know if you've seen it, Nesh. It's brilliant. Um, and he talks about everything that we really need to know uh, about sleep. But the basics um, for, for kids in school, for adults in a workplace, and I've started doing a bit of workplace work um, with, you know, dim the lights half an hour before you go to bed. Uh, don't drink, you know, huge quantities of, of coffee after 1 p.m., um, make sure you sleep in a room which is cool, dark and quiet. Make sure that you um, don't have a big argument with someone before you go to bed. I mean, these basic pieces of sleep hygiene, that needs to be taught as well. Um, and exercise, just to finish off, terribly important. Um, there's a, a brilliant book. I don't know if you've read it, read it called Mind Rules by John Medina. And in it, he cites a piece of work uh, which clearly shows, um, uh, uh, it's called the Harada experiment, clearly shows the connection between exercise and, and good mental health uh, functioning. And we know from Beyond Blue that a really good part of any good treatment program for someone with an anxiety disorder or mood disorder is exercise. So that's the sort of stuff we should be putting in the curriculum. Long answer, but it's what you ask for. No, absolutely. The, the, the challenge that, uh, that keeps popping up in my head is these, que the, the, these, these answers are almost taboo. You know, it's like, how can I go to a psychologist? How do I even convince my colleagues that sit down with uh, clients and talk about diet? You know, I mean, we, we know the data's there, but why is it that, that, that would be so hard and complicated for, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, maybe I'm projecting, but I, I, I just feel like even psychologists would, would feel uncomfortable with having that conversation and, and, and clients wouldn't be comfortable, but it's so important that we need to actually put reality on the table and say, 
yes, diet is important and let's, let's examine it. Let's look at it because it is impacting your mental health directly. This isn't, a, uh, this isn't an indirect, you know, uh, assessment. I know that obviously in research we only do, uh, we don't do causation, we do correlations, but, you know, there, there is a direct effect here. Oh, I, I, no, no doubt. Um, and I think that we, we um, have to, have to re- really have a reality check because I think a lot of people think that we've overcome um, the stigma associated with going to a psychologist full stop. And, and we don't. Um, before the coronavirus, I was flying um, to Perth to give a talk and I was sitting next to a person and we were engaged in a, a very nice conversation and um, they asked me what I did. And when I told them that I was a psychologist, they sort of reeled back in their seat and said, well, have you been analyzing me? And I mean, <laughs> not, not until just right now. Um, but, 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 you know, I, I think that beyond blue, um, saying, are you okay day? Um, they're all fine but I'm not sure that they've actually reduced stigma to a significant level. And I'm still coming across attitudes, which I would argue are antediluvian, which are very similar to the attitudes, values, and beliefs that my father had about psychology as a world war two veteran, which is that why would you pay anyone uh, money to talk to them, which is, you know, the old school. How do you think we should approach stigma trying to 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 remove it normalizing you know being human and having some some difficulties and troubles i think we've got to go where um our clients spend a lot of time which is social media um i think we've got to um have people who have lived experience with mental illness talking more I'll give you an example. The greatest piece of behavior change that I've seen in the last maybe um, five years occurred at Price Waterhouse Coopers. So what they were looking at were their um, referrals to EAPs and they were actually quite low. And we know in a workplace that at least one in five people are gonna have either depression, anxiety or substance abuse disorder and about 0.5% might have psychosis. So that's what the statistics tell us going back to 2007. Um, What they decided was that that was impacting on their productivity. They had a lot of presenteeism and they wanted to do something about it. So they pinched an idea from PwC UK, which is where they spoke to all the most senior members of their staff. So we're talking partners and They had 800 partners across Australia and they basically put out an expression of interest saying, look, have any of you guys had um, a lived experience with uh, mental illness that you would be prepared to talk about um, publicly within the the firm? And they got quite a few people come forward. Um, I was asked with a colleague to um, whittle those down. We, We chose nine of those partners Uh, We made the most beautiful, um, high-quality video productions where they told their stories, beautifully produced, 
incredible production quality, something that I've almost never seen before. Um, and the program was called Green Light to Talk. And these nine individuals were scattered across Australia and each of them wore a green ribbon. The whole firm wore a green ribbon for months and months. And it was a reminder that if anybody had any issue, they didn't have to go to their manager, they didn't have to contact an EAP, but they could just go straight to one of these senior partners who had shared their story on the PwC intranet um, about what was happening with them. And um, we launched this program. Peter, PwC decided to use me um, as a, a reasonably um, well-known psychologist in Australia to launch the program. I gave a 45-minute talk about well-being and, and apps. If you turned up to that talk, which was the launch of the PwC talk, we showed one of the partners videotapes as a, as a precursor to my talk on well-being. And if you turned up, you went into a drawer for lunch with Hugh Jackman, whose father used to work for PwC. And I went right across um, uh, Australia. Uh, and this has proven to be one of the most amazing programs. So what's so great about this is it was policy, not from um, the, the kind of right at the top. We were basically being really inclusive. We're saying, look, we've got senior people who are here ready to help you. We trained those nine people for a day, um, essentially in mental health first aid, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, which wasn't, you know, trying to turn them into Dr. Phil, but trying to give them the skills and the knowledge and the strategies to direct the people who did come them uh, come to them uh, to the appropriate um, uh, place. So for me, that's a really brilliant idea. Why could we not do that in every single firm right across um, Australia? Uh, and and it could be a government initiative where we go to every single company and do that model. I think it works very well. What are your thoughts about the likes of people like Jeff Kennett who have openly spoken about their own challenges or more, more recently uh, Malcolm Turnbull, does that have that impact as well? Uh, or, or do you think it has to come from someone who's a little bit more accessible where, where, you know, it's, you know, partner of a, of, of, of a firm where, where, where's your mind at with that? Because I think, I think modeling is so important and it just normalizes without trying to do so. It's just an open conversation saying, yes, I am human too. Yeah. I think both of those figures are highly polarizing Nesh. Um, and, and they come with a lot of baggage. So personally, I know and like Jeff, I'm a uh, patron of the, um, the Hawthorne Football Club, which he's president of. So I, I've, I've been on the Beyond Blue journey since it started, um, heavily involved at the beginning. Um, but I think he, he's a politician and, and so is Malcolm. I actually went to school with Malcolm in Sydney um, uh, he was about three years ahead of me, but again, he's a highly polarizing um, person. So the model, How about I, would, like I agree. Ian Thorpe, my apologies. How about like an Ian Thorpe? Yeah. Uh, Ian Thorpe, again, a little bit polarizing, 
Um, the, the kind of model I'm thinking of is a, a Kiwi example, which is Sir John Kerwin. Um, now, he was an all black um, and the beauty of John Kerwin and his um, depression awareness program was that he appealed to virtually everyone in New Zealand because that's their religion, rugby. Um, unfortunately, we've got so many codes in Australia that you can't just rely on, on one sport. Um, and you can't have someone, I think, who's an ambassador for more than one thing. So I think Ian's done a fantastic job talking about um, gender issues. And I think that's sensational. I think you kind of confuse people if you get him to, to talk more more about other stuff. And I know he's he's been talking a lot about mental health issues. But the truth is, he is polarizing because of um, some of the, the um, news reports about what he's alleged to have done in the past. So um, I, I want someone who's squeaky clean, um, who doesn't carry that baggage. We once did a survey um, when I was um, on the board of the Alana and Madeline Foundation about who we could, who, who would be the best person to talk to in Australia about, um, to, to, about bullying. And um, the firm that we employed to do that said it's so difficult because um, we came up with Rove McManus um, and, and Rove at the time had a TV show and he was kind of like the ubiquitous good guy but he appealed to a particular demographic. And I think the different difficulty we have is we've got to choose our demographic. Is it, is it old? Is it young? Is it um, retired? Is it um, middle-aged? Um, and, and different people will appeal um, to different things. The, the brilliance of the John Kerwin um, choice was that everybody in New Zealand loves rugby and loves the All Blacks and loved him. And um, the fact that he was able to come out as this big, tough, amazing athlete and say, no, I, I wanted to kill myself. That's just gold. Mm. Just don't have someone who has that status um, in, in Australia. Just a uh, thought that came to mind while you were speaking. I wonder if, if it would be even more effective if we slightly shifted away from talking about, you know, my mental health to those contributors that you spoke about. So having spokespeople who, for example, talk about the, you know, the difficulty I had in parenting or the difficulty I've had with staying up late, you know, being on social media and not getting the sleep that I need or the difficulty I have in, you know, uh, uh, managing a, a well-balanced diet and, you know, my journey through through doing so and the improvements that I've made. It's almost like at the moment we've got uh, an awareness campaign which says, yes, I've, you know, suffered with anxiety or depression or whatever it might be, but we don't necessarily say, yes, I've experienced staying up late at night or I've eaten really poorly for a long time and put on a lot, a lot of weight or, you know, uh, I was lost as a parent and, and um, you know, uh, yelled at my kids and this is how I've kind of turned the corner. We, we almost kind of use categories rather than life experiences from day to day. I wonder if we could potentially use, use exactly what you're saying, but, but 
I know in therapy, we would be looking at it much more specific, whether that would potentially have, have value of, of, you know, having a public figure saying, yes, I'm on Facebook till late at night and, and then I don't perform very well the next day. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, a, a fabulous idea. Um, again, it's a matter of uh, who, what's your market um, and what, how complicated the message is. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting to me. Um, I think it was about 10 years ago, uh, Dr. Phil came to, to Melbourne and um, because I worked for the radio station that sponsored him, I, I got to spend an hour with, with him at um, the Rod Laver Arena. And it's, it's so interesting because he's another sort of fairly polarizing character. But um, he, he told me a couple of things I've never forgotten. One is that he was no longer really a psychologist. He was now an entertainer and that he'd given up his uh, registration. But he told me that he once was a psychologist and he um, showed me the link to his PhD, which was actually very good um, on uh, the impact of... Um, arthritis on on young people and I wrote my PhD on um, the impact of uh, cancer on young people and um, I I was very familiar with the chronic illness space and it was a a good PhD what he said to me is that the our profession had really not done a very good job of promoting itself which I actually agree Um, the the truth is that there are a, a couple of very high profile psychiatrists in this country who um, uh, essentially own the mental health narrative um, and that the media listens to a lot of the time. Um, I, I would love to see the various um, organizations that represent psychologists um, have a much higher profile, be much more um, vocal and talk about some of these things that you're talking about. Um, at the moment, either the um, uh, Australian Association of, of Independent Psychologists or the APS, whichever you know, group you belong to, um, th- they really don't have a very high profile. And um, I think we would do so much better if we did have um, some spokespeople who were um, talking about the things that you were talking about in an authoritative and in a sort of very commercially acceptable way. It's interesting that uh, it, it seems to me that the flavor of, of, of what you're saying is uh, this is very much a, a challenge around distribution of thoughts of getting good ideas out there for the public to be able to access. Uh, and at the moment, even though there's an abundance out there, there isn't a very good job that we've done in promoting where to specifically go because people who are lost don't know where to go. So you just end up Googling, but you can find yourself anywhere and there's a whole lot of rubbish out there versus uh, being able to say, he, go to a peer reviewed um, you know, program that's got some research behind it that you know, this university has looked at and we can see it's evidence-based. Uh, and, you know, there's 15 other options or, you know, a hundred other options 
take the burden away from uh, an hour-to-hour consultation need with a psychologist, not, not saying that, that, that that's not another avenue, but being able to reduce the traffic on the roads. Uh, we need a better campaign in, in psychology uh, of talking about these things. And, and whether that be uh, that I've gone through that and you can you know, speak to, to other people or specific things like sleep, diet, you know, exercise, having a good good uh, network of, of friends, family, bonds. Uh, all, all of this conversation is important, but something with a little bit more practical use rather than just, you know, yes, I also experience it. Yes, I also experience it. Yes, I also experience it. Yeah, I mean, I think what we need, to be honest, is a PhD that can speak in sound bites. Um, but that those sound bites have an evidence base um, and you're so right about everything on the uh, internet and how confusing that is. Um, I had a, a teenage client come to me a few years ago and they brought me a little USB. And on that USB, they downloaded some um, really slick videos that um, they'd been sent from uh, the United States and they had been made by the Church of Scientology. It's not a great fan, as you know, of um, psychology or psychiatry. And these were ads which basically showed a mother and a son in a doctor's um, office. And the doctor was basically explaining how the antidepressant medication that they held in their hands were responsible for um, the mass shootings that occurred at Columbine and um, at various other places. So this was a completely spurious, completely um, fact-free exercise. But this kid had got this off the internet and was absolutely clear that they should not take the fluoxetine that had been prescribed to them quite appropriately for a really savage mood disorder, strong family history, self-harm, attempts at suicide, the whole thing. It was like a totally appropriate um, part of the treatment along with talking therapy. But they had downloaded this absolute garbage from the internet and um, were confused. So, you know, we, we got to cut through that, Nesh. We, we need um, a, a really strong, united um, kind of message on all of the, I mean, we know what the, the, the major problems are. We need to really have a, a united message. And the media aren't our, our, our friends in this. I mean, their reporting, for example, of suicide is um, leaves a lot to be desired. You, you don't live in Melbourne, but just yesterday, on the first day of our year 12 exams, on page four of the equivalent of your Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun, was a full story on a young person who had taken their own life. And the timing was appalling. Now, the only saving grace is that they didn't violate all the mind frame guidelines on the reporting of suicide um, in that they didn't say how they did it. They didn't show pictures of you know the, the the person having taken their own life but it was still 
terribly confronting and that the timing was awful. Media also promote this whole idea that people with psychosis are violent, where in fact, as you know, they're far more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of it. So we've got to do something about the media reporting of mental illness as well. How can we do it? Obviously, you're in the media a lot. You know, what, what would the tips be that you would speak to our colleagues, you know, psychologists or, or you know, even people in the, in the community? What can we do better to start getting this message out that's more than just awareness, uh, you know, that, that obviously transcends awareness because there's plenty of awareness out there. You know, what can, what can we do if we get the opportunity, you know, to, to have our voice heard a little bit more, even if it's on a one-on-one basis? Well, I think we need to make the opportunity. Um, and, and I have for a long time run um, courses uh, for psychologists on um, how to deal with the media, how to put together a press release, how to speak on radio, how to give a you know, reasonably entertaining and interesting performance on television, um, write up eds um, for, for the, the newspaper. Um, I'm very fortunate in that I've been around for a long time. I've got a, um, a regular spot on the number one radio station in Melbourne. I've been the parenting expert for Sunrise for 15 years. And um, I, I'm, I'm in the little black book of a lot of, of, of reporters. Um, and and I, I respect deadlines. I never talk outside of my area of expertise and will generous, generally refer um, the reporter to someone who has um, subject uh, expertise. And um, I, I think that's our, our job. We need to be approaching them. We need to educate them. Um, and uh, I, I think Again, I look at the training. I don't know where you trained, Nash, but um, I, I got most of my training um, undergraduate at Sydney University um, and postgraduate at the University of New South Wales. Uh, we never got taught anything about media um, or public policy advocacy. And I think that's a, a shortcoming in our, um, in our training. I think that anyone who is going for a postgraduate degree in psychology, including um, and especially the researchers, should be taught how to translate their research, which obviously often they've got public money for, they need to translate that into English um, and, and um, be able to convey those results to um, uh, radio, TV and newspapers. I think it's very well well said in terms of that proactivity for it's in actual fact this is about psychology the industry being proactive and putting it forward rather than in some sense hoping for the best and hoping that media does the job well when you know their interests might be a little bit different to to ours and they don't have our in, insights so I think that's that's um that, that's so on point. We as an industry uh, need to need to do better. I'm actually going to have to um. Uh, uh, call you on that and, 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 and uh, speak to you after this about how I can maybe do my 
my part because I think, you know, psychology has so much to offer, but we've got to be much more, you know, direct and succinct and, and, and put out a, a good message to be heard and understood. Otherwise, it just gets lost in all the noise. Couldn't agree more. Happy to take your call. Lovely. Well, Michael, we could talk for for ever and 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 ever. Uh, just before we finish, what what are your hopes for you know mental health here in Australia for for the future? What what would you like to 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 to, to, to see happen in in the next you know uh, ten to twenty years? I think my biggest wish would be to introduce legislation into the federal parliament of Australia. Um, which basically does this. In every organisation at the moment, there's essentially someone who's a designated first aid officer. I think we need to have a law passed that in every organisation with more than, I don't know, 25 employees, they have to have a mental health first aid officer. And that that person has... MHFA training um, and that you cannot essentially register a business unless and until you have such a person trained and preferably two. So um, that to my mind would be a way of um, really beginning to turn things around at the coalface and in order to accommodate the demand which would then be generated through early identification, um, prompt diagnosis and, and speedy treatment, I would want to see a mental health tax introduced, preferably funded by the alcohol industry in Australia, so that for every single bottle of wine that Nesh, you and I might, might have when I'm in Sydney next or um, a, a low alcohol or no alcohol beer, um, in my case, uh, for every single container that we use, 10 cents is hypothecated to a fund which goes to fund um, a proper um, mental health care system in um, Australia uh, because at the moment the funding isn't there. I'd second that. I'd second that. I think having a fund is, is, is important. I know that everyone panics the moment that a tax, you know, the idea of a tax comes up, but that, that's the only way we're going to tackle this. And I, I love the idea. It's practical. It makes sense. It's ground roots. It says people on the floor who are there to support, who are well-trained. And, you know, that, that is really early identification and, and, and early intervention. And, and it also marries up the having that network of support uh, around you immediately. So if someone isn't well connected, at least they've got that in the workplace. Um, some really practical ideas. Michael, I really appreciate it. I know I've got to let you go so you can get back up to, to, to your clinic and, and continue on with your day. Incredibly busy man. Uh, but I really appreciate you, you, you coming onto the show and, and uh, you know, talking about you know, everything, uh, mental health uh, and more, and you know, really having some, some great, practical you know suggestions and ideas thanks very much Nick. if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to itunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media and tell others about it start a conversation 
It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.